living stone and a holy people. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that, the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am lying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honour is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become this cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim his excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into the marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Jesus' Apostle Peter here speaks this of the church. If you glance back to the other page on the other side, chapter 1 and verse 2, if you are sitting here, foreknown, being sanctified and brought to obedience by the triune God, Father, Son and Spirit, having been cleansed by Jesus' blood, as it says there, then then those words on the other page in chapter 2 and verse 9 are for you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And yet, weren't all those things long ago said of Old Testament Israel? When the nation of Israel was receiving the law at Mount Sinai, they were given their purpose as a nation. In Exodus 19 and verse 6, God told Israel via Moses, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. But Peter has just said that here about Jesus' church. Again, as they were getting ready to go into the promised land, God had said to Israel via Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. But Peter has just said that about Jesus' church. Did Old Testament Israel somehow become 
the New Testament church? What even is the church? We might step backwards first and ask that today. What even is the church? That word pops up in our English Bibles in Matthew chapter 16 and about 111 times thereon. And it was Peter who wrote those words there in chapter 2 and verse 9. It was Peter to whom Jesus said in Matthew 16, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. But when Peter said that, or, or, or when Peter was told that by Jesus, when, when Jesus says that in Matthew 16, he, he wasn't introducing there a new idea, nor even a new word, as it happens. Because the Greek word under that word church there in Matthew 16, ekklesia, also occurs in the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures too also FYI about 111 times and Jesus and his apostles seem to know their Greek Old Testaments because they quote from that most of the time. Peter is quoting from his Greek Old Testament right here with those words and I, I think it's safe to say therefore that in Matthew 16 where that word does pop up in your English Bibles that, that Peter and co actually were already familiar with that word that Jesus said there when he said, upon this rock I will build my ecclesia, my church. Literally, literally it, it means an assembly. And in its verbal form, therefore, it's to assemble or, or, or to gather together. And it has a synonym in scripture too, the synagogue in English, or the synagogue in the Greek it's also about being gathered together and interchangeably to some extent uh, ecclesia and synagogue run right through the Greek Old Testament translating this idea, translating the Hebrew words kahal and adar which in that language are interchangeably used for this very same idea, the assembly, the congregation, the multitude, the gathering. My point is this, the idea of a gathering or assembly or a congregation in scripture and, and, and the words around that idea like synagogue and ecclesia in the Greek or, or adar and kahal in the Hebrew, th those words and that concept run right through the counsel of God, Old Testament and New. It's a key theme of God's word. From Genesis chapter 1 and verse 9, when God gathered the waters to one place so as to create dry land in the other, uh, there's a theme that runs through scripture about gathering and assembling things. And that includes, yes, gathering the waters like so, and gathering up branches for the fire, and gathering up wheat into the barn, and so forth. But of more note, of course, is the idea of God gathering his people as an assembly or a synagogue, or an ecclesia, or church, whether to, to bring them all together for the purposes of war, or to bring them together for the purpose of law, uh, for basic civil procedure and so on, or, of course, for the basic matter of worship. 
Uh, we're talking, by the way, in the order of several hundred times this idea of gathering or assembly language being used in the Old Testament scriptures alone with these words. Uh, but a couple of examples so that you can see. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 8, uh, God said to Moses, and assemble the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Those there in the Greek are our church and synagogue words. Ecclesia being used as a verb, if you can imagine that, and, and synagogue as the noun in, in those verses. God says, church the synagogue at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did so. The synagogue was churched together at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Again, example two, Numbers chapter 20. God said to Moses, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. Uh, that is... In the Greek, church the synagogue so that you can give the synagogue water. And the men did that. A couple of verses later, Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly. That is, they churched the synagogue together before the rock. The idea of God gathering his people is nothing new. So in Matthew 16, where that English word church does first turn up in our scriptures, I don't think Peter needs to ask of Jesus, uh, What's a church? The Greek and the Hebrew words around this idea run all the way through God's word. God has always been gathering a people for himself. There is also, of course, the idea of dispersion at play, such as at Babel and at Babylon, which feeds into that wider narrative, of course, of gathering and being assembled together along the way. Indeed, in writing this letter we're looking at to God's church, Peter actually addresses them as elect exiles. If you glance back to chapter 1 and verse 1 this time, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Exiles in the dispersion because they are situated out of the Old Testament homeland of the people of God and they're living in Gentile regions, but elect because they have been gathered in to God's church, his great ecclesia, the assembly being gathered together under Jesus' name. Before Jesus came 2,000 years ago, God had been gathering his people under the promise he had given towards Jesus' coming. Since then, and still today, God is gathering his people under that promise fulfilled. And today we know, of course, by the gospel, the means by which sinful human beings can be gathered together before a holy God. Through the atonement in Jesus' blood, which Peter flagged at the start of his letter in chapter 1 and verse 2, the elect are sprinkled by Jesus' blood which we thought about a few weeks back, if you recall, when we wrestled with wrath and atonement in our series. Before Jesus came to bring that atonement, once for all time, people could only be gathered to God under his promise of that atonement, 
They simply could not have known the details of it in the way that we do today. If they lived with their faith in God's promise of salvation before Jesus came, or if they lived with their faith in God's revealed promise now that Jesus has come, all of God's people, Old Testament and New, are sinners. They are sinners who can only be gathered unto God because of Jesus' blood. And so Peter is very right, if we come back to our text today in chapter 2, to address those sprinkled by Jesus' blood, his church, of course. He's right to address them in what sounds like to our ears Old Testament language there in verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of his out of darkness and into his marvelous light peter is right to speak like so because god is now doing what god has always been doing and i say all that so that maybe today we can get a bit of clarity on the church as we try to bring our series to a close the first point of which might be fairly clear by now there's not two peoples of God. The Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church are not somehow rival groups at odds with each other. Uh, That would actually undermine everything that we've been looking at in Scripture in this Council of God series. No, there's only one people of God. As God said to Old Testament Israel through Moses, so he now says through Peter to the Jew and Gentile church, you are my chosen race, my royal priesthood, my holy nation, my people for my own possession. It was true of those in Israel who trusted God's promise to atone for their sin, and it is true of those today who trust that of God and even know the name by which that atonement has come. If there were two peoples of God, then there would be need of two Gospels, wouldn't there? Two ways to atone for sin. But there is only one way to atone for sin. Which is why after that atonement was made manifest in Jesus Christ, his apostles took that same and singular gospel to both Jews and Gentiles, going as they did, first of all, to the synagogue, we might note, because the assembly of God must now gather under the the new and now revealed details of Jesus' name. The atonement has now come. One Lord there is, one faith there is, one baptism as we touched on last week. There is one and but one atonement for the people of God. And so nor did Peter and the apostles back in Matthew 16, nor did they need to wonder if Jesus was was setting out to build some kind of rival assembly to that of Old Testament Israel. No, they were still thinking Israel is what they were doing. Because what did they say? Even at Jesus' ascension, what did they say? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It was later in Acts 10 that the Great Commission really began to sink in, that, that the atonement was going to be held out even wider now to bring the Gentiles in to the people of God. 
So this is the church, the gathering together of Gentile and Jew as one people of God under Jesus' blood. And while many in Israel have rejected that truth of atonement in Jesus' blood, shed once for all time, others, of course, have gladly come in. And any who would yet come in to the people of God, whether Gentile or Jew, they all must be assembled now under the name we know of Jesus. There is one atonement, one people, one church. Which means we then must turn our thoughts to those who aren't assembled under that truth. And within the assembly, I mean, such as Jews, uh, whether at the time of Jesus' coming or, or, or still today, Jews who would claim to be part of God's assembly, of course, but they did not and, and they have not now assembled under Jesus' name. Or people in Christ's church, as we use that more colloquially today, people in the church, for that matter, who are gathered in terms of their presence but not really gathered in the spiritual sense of having been sprinkled by Jesus' blood, as Peter puts it. Assembly, of course, has a range of meanings and uses in the original languages too, and so it shouldn't really surprise us that, that within an assembly of a more generic kind, there can also be a finer nuance to that word in their midst. Just as Jesus taught about wheat and tares growing together in the same field, so too within the gathering of his people, some will be truly and, and spiritually assembled under his name, but others won't be. Even though, of course, they'll nevertheless be there in the same space. This is the reality of the church as we look around in this world. And that fine distinction all hangs, of course, on Jesus as we come back to our letter and pick up verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honour is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. There were people gathered under God's name in Old Testament Israel who would have rejected, even at the time of this prophecy, all those years before Jesus, and of course rejected this very idea of, of, of a stone being laid in Zion when Jesus came. There still are people in Israel and in Judaism all around the world today who would reject this very idea of what God has done. So too there are people in the church who identify with Jesus, but in their heart they do not belong to him. They do not identify as sinners who need saving, or they refuse to repent of their sin and be saved. 
They like the name Jesus for some other reason, but they are not of the people God is truly gathering to himself. So point two as to what the church is, there is an assembly within the assembly, so to speak. There always has been, it would seem, and always will be. Those who truly belong to Jesus within a wider gathering of people. If we get our head around those two points as to what the church is, that there is one people of God uh, stretched across BC and AD, and that it's difficult to see that people clearly because there are others gathered around, well, catching hold of those two points is going to have us do two very important things. Uh, First, it will help us learn to see ourselves in terms of God's historical movement of salvation. It will show us how central and how precious the church is in God's plan, but it will also keep our hearts grounded and assured in his one glorious plan. This is how he saves. If we don't catch God's salvation historical plan, what we'll otherwise then fall into is a kind of tailored idea, a personalised idea of salvation, where with our own invented kind of terms, uh, according to what we think we will or won't be saved by, our our whole idea of salvation will, will actually be lost. As if our sin is how we kind of will, will think. As we think as if our sin and our condition is somehow special or, or, or different or, or more or less severe than everyone else's condition. That's what we'll fall into if we miss God's historical plan of salvation. Uh, but then the second thing, of course, the mixed reality of assembling in this world is probably going to, uh, well, hopefully going to help us examine our hearts uh, as to whether we We really are part of God's church, setting us clear on where we really do stand. If we don't catch that idea, that there's an assembly within the assembly, so to speak, then then we might kind of hide in the salvation historical plan, as many of the Jews were found to be doing when Jesus came, and as many still do today. So too, we can likewise be lost in the crowd of his church without actually being saved. But if we take these two things on, that there is one people of God, all of whom are saved by Jesus' blood, and that we must therefore make sure that we have come to him that way, then, well then, yes, we can take hold of that beautiful verse 9 here in chapter 2 as our very own words you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession and which will then give us clarity on the church as to a third point we must raise the why of church the why of church because one thing we haven't really gotten to yet in our series the council of god is is the point of all of this Why? Why this salvation historical church? Why this true church within? The purpose for which God is gathering to himself a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, is so that we can all glorify him with one voice, now and for all eternity to come. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. This is what we've been called to, brothers and sisters. And this is how it will be, world without end. We will glorify the God who gathered us to himself, assembled in his glory. I want to stretch here from 1 Peter uh, and stretch into Revelation if you'd like to turn there. It's on page 1031 in in these church Bibles. I want to read from uh, the picture at the end of all this where we will be. We're all at last gathered uh, into God's holy presence as one. I want to read from Revelation chapter 7, if you've found that there. And this is the Apostle John who sees the future of the church in glory. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from 12 tribes. And then down in verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now that sounds a little like two peoples of God, doesn't it? 144,000 from Israel, 12 squared by 10 squared as if to show perfection and completeness. And then a great multitude of Gentiles, it seems. But we might look again. John heard the number of those sealed, the people of God, verse 4. He heard the number. And then he looked, verse 9, and saw. And what did he see? 144, 12 by 12 perfect thousand people? No. No, he saw a great multitude beyond what can even be counted from every nation and all of them as one people glorifying God. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, John goes on, saying, 
Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 1 Peter 1 and verse 2. They have been sprinkled by his blood. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. That's another way of saying they worship him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. This is how it will be for the people of God, world without end. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism does state, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And we will do that. And we will do that together. Whether he gathered us from BC or AD is neither here nor there. By the blood of the Lamb that atones for sin, sinners can stand before God in all his holiness as his precious church. We will all be swept up into God's glory and we will glorify him forever. And all of this, by the way, is just what God had once said to the original Israel, the man, Jacob. Genesis 35 from verse 10, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. That is, a nation and a synagogue of nations, a gathering of nations, an assembly or church of nations shall come from you, Jacob, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and to Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring, that is, your common singular offspring after you. It's the picture we just looked at in Revelation 7. A nation and a gathering of nations, all gathered and assembled as one, gathered together in their collective inheritance around the throne of God. Because, of course, of the ultimate king who came from that man, Jacob, our Jesus. I want to close this series thinking on that point, what God is doing all this for. Not just all the gathering and the assembling that we're thinking through today, but everything we've thought through this term. Why the creating? Why the recreating by God? The covenant making with man by God. The faithfulness God shows man always shows unfaithful man. Why? Why the judgment and the wrath and the atonement that he made for man? Why the rebirth and the renewal of man? 
the forgiveness, the salvation, the transformation of redeemed man. And yes, the gathering of the many as one under Jesus' name. Why has God planned all that he is doing? Everything revealed to us in his word. That we may be with him and behold his glory and glorify him, world without end, as one. The worship of God is central to scripture, of course, and we must reframe our lives around that view. Both uh, alone, uh, in each moment of our lives, we must be learning how to reframe ourselves uh, to glorify God in all that we say and do. And, and together, of course, as his people, we must frame our whole church life with worship in view. And I want to suggest that the way that we must do that is by reframing our lives under the counsel of God. That as Christians and as a church, we must surrender to God's word and live under God's word day by day and night after night. That's how we can come to glorify God, by listening to his word. We should be ready and willing to confess, of course, as uh, verse 9 says in our scripture, our mouth should be open with praise. So too, with our actions, we would praise him. Peter goes on in verse 11 and 12. Our worship of God is not just when we speak and sing praises to him, but when we sit under his word, when we learn how to obey. Peter is on to that in verse 12. And from the very start of his letter, of course, right through to the end. And on both scores, our words and our actions, we will honour God if we have framed that heart of worship by opening up his word and finding God on his terms. And as we are opened by his word, we'll more and more realise that these things that we've been thinking through in this series, not just what God is wanting for us, this is what God will do for his people. This precious statement here by Peter in verse 9, the picture of the glory to come in Revelation 7 that we just skipped to, if you have come to Jesus in true repentance to be sprinkled by his blood, then all of this glory he has now earmarked for you. Because this is what God is doing and will do for all of his people. But please don't take my word on that. It's written out for you in the counsel of God. Live this glorious calling according to his word. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the privilege it is to open it up again today. And Father, as we think in our minds and we think about your church in this world, we, we worry that your word has been left by the wayside on some things and in some places. And of course, we ourselves do that at times too. But that must not be. How can we know you from your word and, and lay claim to your promises 
given us in your word and yet not then listen to and live under your word. Please, Father, let that not be our way. Help us to surrender to your word in all of our lives. Help us to surrender and so that we would know through that what it is that you have called us to be and so that we would truly come together as your people and and glorify you for all eternity, but so too, of course, now and here too. As we finish our series, Father, pray, please help us as we continue to search out your word. We've only just touched into it in 10 weeks. Help us to keep searching it so that we can better know and love you through your word. And Father, take all of my words and everything I've said now and have them all fizzle away so that only your word should remain. Our flesh is like grass and its glory is like flowers. Let it all wither away. But we know that your word and your sweet, beautiful gospel will always remain. So in Jesus' name and for his church we pray, all glory be to you, our God. Amen.